And they say that Grenada violates human rights. When they say to us, how come you have detainees? What about the press? What about elections? When they say to us, where are your elections? They don't turn around at the same time and say to their friends in South Africa, where are your elections? Aliende did not form a militia. Aliende did not grab any land or property. Aliende had no political detainees. Aliende did not crush the press. He did not close down the parliament. He did not suspend the constitution. He played by every rule they wrote, but they killed him still. These people understand very well that a revolution means a new situation. Revolution means that the abuses and excesses of the violent, reactionary, and disruptive minority has to be crushed so that the majority interest can prevail. So when these elements come and make these statements, we understand only too well where they are coming from. They understand that in Grenada, no one is ever interfered with for what he says. No one is ever interfered with for what he writes. In fact, today, criticism is deeper than ever in the society in a constructive way. But our people also understand that the first law of the revolution is that a revolution must survive, must consolidate, so more benefits can come to them. And because of this fact, the revolution has laid down as a law that nobody, regardless of who you are, will be allowed to be involved in any activity surrounding the overthrow of the government by the use of armed violence. And anyone who moves in that direction will be ruthlessly crushed. So hello and welcome to the Cadre Journal. I'm Joseph. And today I'm joined by David Austin. Uh, David is the author of Fear of a Black Nation, Dread Poetry and Freedom on Linson Quasi Johnson, and the editor of You Don't Play with Revolution, the Montreal Lectures of CLR James, amongst other texts. What else would I add? Oh, not much. You mentioned Fear of a Black Nation, Race, Sex, and Security in 60s Montreal, which is um, not unrelated, actually, to what we're going to talk about today in some respects, in terms of how I come into an understanding of Grenada. Um, it's through living in the city of Montreal. Um, I teach at John Abbott College, which is here in Montreal, in the Humanities, Philosophy, and Religion Department, and also in the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada. Mm, no, that's about it, I think, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, today we're going to be discussing your article, 
Vanguards and Masses, which reflects on the Grenadian Revolution of 1979 and the aftermath of it, the United States invasion, but really focuses more on the internal dynamics of the revolution, uh, the disagreements within the People's Revolutionary Government. But just to set the scene a little bit, if you could introduce the New Jewel Movement, uh, the PRG, mm -hmm. and the revolution in Granada in the way that you do in the text by contextualizing it globally and locationally within the Caribbean, within the island of Granada. Sure. But before I do that, I want to just start by saying, I think it'd be useful for me to say a few words about, um, you know, my relationship to Grenada and why I initially began writing about Grenada. Um, so I come from a Jamaican background. My parents were Jamaican, but my stepmother, is Grenadian, so I partly grew up in a Grenadian household in Toronto, um, which is where I went to high school and junior high school. And so, obviously, conversations about Grenada were commonplace in the household. And my vivid memory of the Grenada Revolution is tied to me sitting in the kitchen in the apartment that we were living in <clears throat> and in the, sorry, in the house that we were living in and listening to Ronald Reagan either on ABC or CBS or NBC News announce the invasion of Grenada. That's the part that's etched in my mind very concretely. Uh, and, um, you know, a few years after that, my older brother, Andrew, who was um, in college at the time and was part of a, a Caribbean students group, handed me a package of material which was about the what was referred to as the kangaroo, kangaroo trial of the Grenada, of, of those who had been arrested in the aftermath of the U.S. invasion of Grenada. And it kind of, it talked about who they were, <clears throat> the circumstances under which they were arrested, and the nature of the trial and how they were convicted for their um, role in the, not so much the demise of the revolution, because obviously, you know, that would not have been the concern of the U.S. or the government that came after for the, for the most part, in the aftermath of the Grenada Revolution, in Grenada for the most part, but in the assassination of the leadership of the revolution, which is not quite the same. Some of the leadership that were killed during the revolution assassinated on Fort Rupert. So, you know, those those two things were my represented my introduction to the Grenada Revolution and thinking about it. And, and that package of information was important. I will tell you why. Because in it, there was a lot of conversation about the courts, Bernard Court and Phyllis Court. And they were not demonized in those documents in the way that I would later come to understand. They were um, both within, amongst Grenadians and also non-Grenadians on the left. So when I began to hear <clears throat> the kind of those, those, those reflections of Bernard Court, especially in the way in which he was uh, demonized, um, I was in a position to pause, right? And try and make sense of what was being described as a conflict between two people, Maurice Bishop and Bernard Court, and try to think what was beneath that supposed conflict between two individuals and the way and and why was 
uh, po political differences within the political party being reduced to individuals. Um, so, and I'll add one other thing. So some of two things. So having, having moved to Montreal <clears throat> in, uh, or back to Montreal, because um, I lived here for two years, having come here from England in 1980 with my family. Having moved back to Montreal, <clears throat> I encountered a number of people from Grenada who had been directly and actively involved in the Grenada Revolution, including one person who had served as Morris Bishop's personal security guard at one point. So I was then getting the insights of a number of Grenadians <clears throat> who had been involved. And these are not people that were involved in the Central Committee or this, that, the other. These were, you know, quote unquote, ordinary great Grenadians who, who nonetheless played a very significant, important role. So hearing their perspectives gave me a great deal of insight. And then um, <clears throat> in 2000, I guess it was the winter of 2000, I traveled to Grenada with uh, a Grenadian friend and and some other friends and spent some time in Grenada. And the thing that was notable about, one of the things that was notable about that is that I visited the prison where the prisoners who had been arrested, tried and convicted uh, for the murder of various um, members of the central, of the leadership of Grenada and civilians. Um, <clears throat> I met some of them and had a conversation with some of them, which um, I would say in a certain kind of way deepened my understanding of, you know, or gave me an additional understanding, let's say, of how things unfold in the Grenada order. And of course, while in Grenada, a number of people from Grenada who had been involved in the leadership, those who had not been involved in the leadership, a range of people. And we were just having a lot of conversation about the Grenada Revolution. So that's where I come from. That's that's where my point of departure in terms of entering a conversation about the Grenada Revolution is both um, partly personal, but also tied to, um, you know, relationships and friendships in many instances with people who are actively involved in the Grenada Revolution. The research and writing came after. That's that's really fascinating to hear, and especially kind of the perspective of seeing past the United States misinformation at the time. I know that um, Audre Lorde has written as well on the subject of trying to see Grenada from behind the U.S. perspective um, and some of the lies that were perpetuated uh, mm -hmm. by Reagan's administration. So I, I wonder if you, you know, you mentioned the respect that those on the global left had for Maurice Bishop. And in your article in particular, he is a figure that although, you know, made perhaps mistakes. And I guess we'll get into this discussion around the question of vanguardism, the question of Leninism in this revolutionary context. But perhaps we can contextualize Bishop and the, and the NJM in the surroundings they came from and what their what they were doing and trying to rebel against Gary's government, but more generally what their sort of revolutionary perspective was, why they turned away from electoralism and towards increasingly a vanguardist approach. Sure. Sure. So I think sometimes what happens, and I think it's especially true when um, people not very familiar with the Caribbean write about Grenada, <clears throat> is that it's often taken outside of its Caribbean context. So it was definitely part of an international context. 
you know, and part of the Cold War context, and all of those things, um, ideological struggle between socialism and capitalism, etc. But first and foremost, it was born in and out of the Grenadian, sorry, the Grenadian context, yes, and the Caribbean, the wider Caribbean context. Um, it's not really the post-nationalist period because, you know, as late as 66, there were only, 1966, there were only four countries in the Anglophone Caribbean that had acquired their independence. Trinidad, Jamaica, Guyana, and Barbados. And Grenada only acquired its independence, you know, in the early 70s. Um, so, well, almost mid-70s. So, you know, independence was still in motion in many parts of the Caribbean. That's that's important to add. But there was a nationalist moment that galvanized people across the Caribbean. And it was tied to the visions of independence. It was tied to the labor movement. It was tied to the currents of the 1960s. Um, it was tied to the emergence of the Black Power period. And not just in the United States, but internationally. Um, it was tied to a kind of cultural renaissance in the Caribbean. And as Robert Hill, the historian and theorist, suggests, there's a way in which we can think about Caribbean history both pre-1968 and post-1968. And what he's referring to is the expulsion of Walter Rodney from Jamaica in 1968 and the protests and manifestations, demonstrations that ensued and how that led to this mushrooming, this flowering of what we might refer to as Caribbean New Left groups and organizations. <clears throat> Um, in the East and Western Caribbean, Abang and other groups, um, Abang especially in Jamaica, but there were various other groups, and Jack emerged, um, and various other groups across the Caribbean uh, uh, context. And there's also an organization called New World, which was more economistic, but actually that journal, the organization, but the journal, in addition to economic analyses and, you know, Think, think, you know, question, think about questions of development and underdevelopment, um, included poetry, book reviews, you know, analyses of writers and artists, people like Sylvia Winter was contributing to it, um, articles by and about people like Yang Carew or CLR James. So there's, you know, granted, didn't just follow the sky, ideologically speaking, is what I'm trying to say. There was a, a strong intellectual political undercurrent. And Marxism was just one part of that undercurrent, that was one set of ideas that was circulating. Socialism, one set, an important set of ideas that was circulating through the Caribbean, but there's also a kind of nationalist stream. So historically speaking, post-1968, Morris Bishop, who had been studying abroad, had been very much influenced by Black power. <clears throat> but there's another person and this is one of the friends that I was talking, mentioned earlier, a very dear friend who passed away some years ago now, who had been involved in the events of Trinidad 1970, when the government of Eric Gary was almost overthrown in an aborted military coup. But the coup coincided 
with mass protests, black power protests, largely organized by an organization called NJAC, the National Joint Action Committee. And those protests, interestingly enough, <laughs> were initially sparked because a number of Caribbean black folks in Montreal had been invest arrested for their involvement in the Sir George Williams protests, which is now Concordia University. <laughs> so it was the protest against racism sparked by the accusations of racism against a white professor, and it led to an occupation, and the computer center was set on fire um, somehow, and people arrested, et cetera. So there's a whole story there. So all of this I'm saying is part of what brings the Caribbean New Left kind of Black power nationalism into being. Morris Bishop is part of that and also enters that when he returns to the Caribbean, when he turns to Grenada. Now, I mentioned Franklin Harvey because Franklin Harvey had been a student of C.L.R. James. And this is where we're going with this is anticipating the kind of different ideological currents in Grenada itself. You could say that Franklin Harvey was a disciple of C.L.R. James, along with Robert Hill, Tim Hector, and Cools, and Alfie Roberts, all of whom were part of a C.L.R. James study circle in the Caribbean Conference Committee. Of all of those people, Franklin Harvey is the one that took the question of organization, how you organize for change, most seriously, I would say. Other folks took James's thinking in different directions, equally as serious, but just in different directions. <clears throat> Franklin Harvey was an organizer and thought conceptually about how you organize for change. <laughs> he was involved in Trinidad in 1970. He was working there after he left Montreal, where he studied engineering at McGill University. And when, at one point, it was discovered by the government of Eric Williams that he had played some kind of role, he was politely asked to leave the country. And because he's Grenadian, not Trinidadian, he was deported, basically. He returns to Grenada, where he forms an organization called Movement for the Assemblies of the People. And you can tell just from the title <clears throat> that that organization, what it represented, assemblies of the people, debate, dialogue, conversation with the people, consciousness raising, right? Building a movement from below through assemblies, conversation, discussion, taking a page right out of James's conception of self-organization and the building of a mass movement <clears throat> or a mass party that's not a party because it's once it becomes a mass party, you're talking about a mass movement. So it's not a conventional party in a way that, in fact, you know, the word party doesn't do, do, do it justice. So Franklin Harvey is in Grenada doing this work in the early 1970s. And there are other folks who are involved in groups like uh, this. Bernard Cord who's involved in Orel. There's Morris Bishop who's involved, becomes involved in Jewel, right? And they're active. There's a kind of ferment because Eric Garion is a very interesting book by Archie Singham called The Hero and the Crowd, which explores Eric Gary as an example of the kind of charismatic leader, a certain type of leader that builds his leadership centered around his personality as opposed to organization or movement or building of a mass political party. But what is interesting is that Eric Gary was a hero 
in Grenada. He was a, a labor organizer fighting for the rights of ordinary workers. <clears throat> but along the way, he seems to have lost his way and ventured into all kinds of very strange things uh, or you know, unconventional things, let's say, to do with UFOs and things like that and you know, astrology. And but beyond that, became a repressive dictator. Use repression, use what was referred to as the Mongoose Gang, his is his personal paramilitary, more or less personal paramilitary para group that was similar to the Tonton Makut in Haiti. <clears throat> he did whatever he could to hold on to leadership. And at a certain point, these groups that were working independently, and keep in mind, we're talking about an island, Grenada, that's 12 by, I think, 12 by 20, 21 miles. Right? You have these various groups, they decide to come together, and they form the new Jewel movement. Morris Bishop's father, who had been actively active in Grenada, he was killed, actually, by the government, by Gary's armed gangs. <clears throat> They formed the New Jewel Movement. Franklin Harvey, interesting, is the person that wrote the manifesto for the New Jewel Movement. And from its early stages, from the outset, it was organized as a movement from below along the CLR James kinds of lines. Not a vanguard party. After several attempts, to win electoral seats and electoral power through elections and bearing witness to electoral fraud and again, the use of violence, right? To prevent the opposition from assuming power. The new Jewel movement made a decision <clears throat> to transition towards a vanguard party, A, to protect itself in terms of security, but also to be better organized. <clears throat> and of course, we know also that was a kind of a military wing associated with that too. Right? People were training because they had come to the realization slash conclusion that um, Eric Gary was not going to cede power and he was willing to do whatever he could to retain power including killing people and using and using you know resorting to force and coercion that was a major turning point in what would later become the Grenada revolution before it happens right but of course that's a very strange way of saying it because the Grenada revolution begins before the Grenada revolution begins I mean, it begins before March 13th everything that I've just been talking about is part of the Grenada revolution before they you know the, uh, the new Juma and the people's Re revolutionary government assumes power so Franklin Harvey, and I talk about this in the article that you made, made reference to, made the decision when Jewel, the new Jewel movement became a vanguard party, he opted out because his understanding of politics would not out permit him to be involved in an organization that by virtue of being a vanguard party distanced itself from the people. That was his perception. <clears throat> So he opted out when there was a point where it seems quite clearly 
quite clear that he could have been more bishop. He could have been leading the new dual movement or playing a leadership role at least. Now, one of the things that he said to me personally and you know in private, because I never recorded an interview with him, was that um, you know, in particular, you know, Bernard Cord, who had become um, closely associated with the Workers' Party of Jamaica, led by Trevor Monroe. And this is, again, I want to emphasize this point about, you know, we have to think about Grenada within the context of the rest of the Caribbean and the Caribbean left. The Workers' Party of Jamaica was Jamaica's Communist Party. Trevor Monroe was a leadership, in his leadership. <clears throat> Figures like Rupert Lewis, for example, was actually stationed in Prague at one point. Um, you know, so this was Jamaica's official Communist Party tied to the Soviet Union. And Bernard Cord was closely tied with the Workers' Party of Jamaica and was by and large responsible for introducing kind of Soviet model, Soviet Union model of, of communism into Grenada, by and large. <clears throat> and that then reflected tension that were embedded in the government from the outset, once they assumed power, right? that were essentially non unresolved in some ways. But I don't want to exaggerate that either, because clearly if Morris Bishop was the leader of the new dual movement, he participated in the decision for the new dual movement to become a vanguard party. And when he was in power, prior to that, you know, after that decision, he was part of the infrastructure, right? He was the head of government, actually, right? Of a vanguard party. So we have to be careful, I think, you know, when people talk about, well, Bernard Cord was undemocratic and so on, and then his wife, Phyllis Cord, and there's sometimes a bit of xenophobia attached to that because she was actually Jamaican. And then, you know, Morris Bishop, on the other hand, they were all part of the Central Committee. Now, if somebody wants to say on a personal level, on a personality level, um, Morris Bishop was more affable than Bernard Cord. Okay, that might be a fair, but but what does that mean in politics? Like, what are we talking about, right? It's also true that Bernard Cord was an economist who balanced the country's budget, by all accounts did a remarkable job. There's a story, myth or not, apocryphal or real, that Bernard Cord was, while he was in prison, was still balancing Grenada's budget, right? But it gives you some sense, right, of his stature and how he was perceived actually within the party, even if people outside the party did not know him that way because Morris Bishop was the, the face of the new dual movement and the face of the people's revolutionary government, right? Now, and that tells us something also too, because, you know, Morris Bishop is often described as like the charismatic leader versus the other kind and, and the face of the revolution. That was clearly a decision that was made within the party, right? For Morris Bishop to be at the forefront and politics, right? These are all folks that, that have made a profound contribution to understanding our human condition. And yet, there's still this perception of that place of, almost as a place of nothingness, that's just there just to meet the, the hedonistic needs of tourists. But if people get beyond that, they can look like a look at a place like Grenada, or look at the implications of the Cold War in a place like Jamaica, right, and try and make sense of how 
those politics play themselves out in other contexts. Absolutely. And I think in addition, you, you have some really excellent points in the article about the need to, you know, when you say, for example, that uh, in following Tim Hector's argument that Tim Hector argued that the revolution's collapse reminds the need to return to specific historical experiences and not to have this persistent inauthenticity um, in the revolution. I, I was struck by that line in the way in which you write consistently about Marxism-Leninism being grafted onto Granada without thought about how to apply it to the conditions, just trying to export it directly from the Soviet Union at that time. And I'm curious in reflecting on that, what the legacy of the Grenadian revolution is today in, in modern Granada, what the legacy of the invasion is, the destruction that the invasion brought in the collapse of the revolution and how there are there is an attempt to rebuild and of course articulate a new vision of, of revolution after having perhaps the, this experience that leads to further insights as to how revolution can be attempted and practiced. Mm. Well, people are still repairing themselves post Grenada Revolution. But there's much more conversation about Grenada today amongst Grenadians and even members of the Caribbean left for that matter than there was 20 years ago, 15 years ago, or even 10 years ago. Right? My grandmother used to say often that nothing comes before time. Right? And time, time heals some things. There were certain conversations you could not have in the 80s. It was too close. I remember being in conversations, you know, where people got really heated or people would just get up and walk away because they just couldn't participate in a conversation where, you know, tensions and contradictions were being raised or certain leaders were being, who were otherwise popular, being criticized and critiqued. Um, which reminds me, just before we, before we end, we should come back to the joint leadership question, which I did mention in passing, but I, I mean, yeah, because that was significant. But in relation to the first part of what you said, and also I should say there, I was at a conference just two Fridays ago um, where Grenadians were talking about the Grenada Revolution, but also talking about it in relation to, to, to current, current initiatives around education, right? And raising the awareness of people, what's possible in Grenada, smaller projects, you know, around community development, which sounds NGO-ish like, but like we're talking about people from Grenada working amongst Grenadians, right? You know, building things like libraries, basic things that like open people's minds to a world, you know, and human possibilities. So there are initiatives like that um, going on. Um, but I want to say something, you know, about this thing called socialism or Marxism and how it can apply to specific conditions. What I'm going to say might sound a bit obvious, but it's actually not. The first thing I think we have to understand and appreciate about Marxism, and as in the ideas of Karl Marx and Engels, right, is that they actually do come from a very specific context themselves. Karl Marx was German. He was writing about Western Europe, and specifically, if we're talking about capital, mostly England. 
as his point of departure working outwards. Right? That's a very specific conception. No, not a very specific conception. It's a very specific orientation and place of departure out of which he made some generalizations and universal assumptions, which is what we all do. But they're universal only insofar as we appreciate them from the context in which they came, which means that another set of ideas, no, you can take the same methodology, not ideas, methodology approach, and try to think about them in a different context, and a different set of ideas or practices should emerge. Because the methodology is dialectical material, not historical materialism. And I'm making a distinction there because historical materialism, as I would look at it and define it, suggests, you know, it's like teleological, history being linear, moving in a straight line. Whereas for me, dialectical materialism is a method, right? Thinking about this thing called a dialectic in relation to concrete material circumstances, which obviously vary from one context to the next, right? So with that in mind, for me, one of the most exemplary examples of the practice of dialectical materialism is Amakar Kerbal in Guinea-Bissau, where he takes the methodology of dialectical materialism and thinks about it in relation to Guinea-Bissau. And he was an agronomist, so he spent a lot of time in the forest, a lot of time around people living in remote areas. So he understood Guinea-Bissau very well. And he applied that approach or analysis to thinking about the various kinds of social economic structures that existed outside of the official structure, which is tied to culture in Guinea-Bissau. So, so it's not culture in the sense of like necessarily the language that people speak or their religious beliefs, right? which is more superstructural. But really, like, how fundamentally were these societies structured? Hierarchical, horizontally, were they communal, were they tied to kingship? You know, those kinds of questions, which reflect the worldview also. And he comes to the conclusion that those societies that were more horizontally structured put up more of a resistance to colonization than those that were more hierarchically or vertically structured, which I've always believed is just a profoundly important insight. It's kind of similar, and people have, people have challenged this, but it's also similar to Kamal Brathwaite, the historian and poet from Barbados, talking about the flatscape of Barbados not being conducive to a certain kind of rebellion, whereas Grenada, and this is actually him talking in Grenada about the Grenada Revolution, you know, has a history of marinage and even the resistance of the Caribs and Arawaks in, in that part of the Caribbean, in those mountainous territories, right? People like Fedon and Chatway and St. Vincent and Grenada. But they were able to put up that kind of resistance because they could, they could retreat to the mountains. And of course, African Maroons did the same thing. That's a kind of materialist approach, right? Trying to understand how different contexts, both socially economically, in this case, geographically, yield different kinds of historical political results. It seems as though, ideologically speaking, at a certain point, that was not being done in Grenada. 
and a set of ideas were being transplanted from a very different context, the Soviet Union, and being imposed upon a very, you know, this other context, this local context, which couldn't be more different than the Soviet Union in so many, every way that's obvious, right? So that's an important lesson that I think we can take from that. It's like, you know, you know, we can take an approach, a methodology, while critically engaging it, meaning that like we're open to saying, well, even this approach, parts of it don't work in a certain context, right? But even if we take the approach, it's a method of observation. Right? If we're being honest with it, it tells us something very different because we're talking about a different society. So you can't just impose conclusions that come from another place in a very different context. But I wanted to say something about the joint leadership thing because you know, this gets to some other kinds of questions that in a certain kind of way fit within the interstices, inter interstices of, of politics, but not really, right? And this is the distinction between the leadership and even like the central committee, maybe not even like the broad membership and the vast majority of the population who understood more Bishop as the leader of the Grenada Revolution, when clearly there was a whole infrastructure and a party involved, right? So yes, he was the official leader, but there's a leadership too. At some point, as things began to decline, and of course, you know, we can think about it, like they were on a four-year cycle before the revolution collapsed, right? Four years in socioeconomic terms and in terms of quote-unquote development, right? You're going to have, it's not even, you know, it's barely the beginning of an economic cycle, which can never entirely go in a straight line forward. Because things have been so backward economically in Grenada, there was a lot of room for growth. When things began to stall, questions were raised about why things are stalling. And members of the Central Committee came to the conclusion that they needed stronger leadership. They came to the conclusion that they needed joint leadership. And Bernard Cord, who was vice president, but who played a very prominent role in the party, and remember, he's the person that was also like the ideological communist from the Soviet Union. I mean, not from the Soviet Union, but like Soviet style, so, you know, communism. But it's also, as an economist, played a very central role in Grenada's development, economically speaking. The Central Committee decided that they needed both of them to play a joint leadership role. Morris Bishop was opposed to it, but he agreed. But on a human level, there's no doubt that he would have seen that as a, a reflection of what's the term you would use, like a lack of confidence in his leadership. And here's where, you know, there's things going through my mind that I would not say here, right? Because of things that you hear in conversations that um, remind you though, that politics is also about personalities and politicians, people who play prominent political roles, they're just human beings too, right? With all the strengths and weaknesses and frailties that are associated with being human. 
And we shouldn't be surprised with that when we encounter it. Morris Bishop traveled to Eastern Europe and came back via Cuba on his way to Grenada, back to Grenada. And somewhere in between there, a joint leadership decision that he had agreed upon, however much he may have been opposed to it, you know, he said that um, he was uh, he didn't agree any longer. That sparked a conflict. And Morris Bishop was managed, you know, put on you know, put under heavy manners, as somebody would say in Jamaica, you know. You know, he was um, reprimanded but, and put under house arrest. In retrospect, I don't think anybody can look at that objectively and say that even if the Central Committee had the authority to put him under house arrest, that that was an intelligent decision. You're putting the person who was the most popular person in the entire country and who is unanimously recognized as the leader under house arrests. When people have no idea at all that there was some kind of internal tension or conflict or whatever the case may be. People speculate that Bernard Cord was, you know, manipulating things behind the scenes because he wanted to be in leadership, but, you know. There's nothing that I've heard. I mean, I've heard that, but there's nothing that I've heard that's convinced me that it was entirely entirely true. And people did seem to believe that joint leadership was the direction that things need to go. It seems to have been quite unanimous. The people get wind that Morris Bishop is under house arrest and they free him. They release him. And they seemed it like, I mean, He's essentially carried to the fort, Fort Rupert. And then what happens after that? And, you know, this may be one of those things that we will not know for some time exactly how those things unfolded, right? But to cut a long story short, they take control of the fort. The armory is also on the fort, so people are now armed. The military moves in to take back the fort. And clearly gunfire is exchanged. What happens after that when the military eventually takes back the fort is, you know, the compounded tragedy. And there's a film by, uh, what's the name of the film? Paddington is the last name of the film. He's a Trinidadian filmmaker. It's about the Grenada Revolution, where the person who made the decision to execute those Grenadians on the fort, including Jackie Kreft and Bernard, uh, Maurice Bishop, but a number of civilians, equally important, a number of civilians. He's in the film. And he takes responsibility for it. I don't think he quite explains like what possessed him. But it is in essence saying that he was not ordered to do that. Maybe it was a moment of madness. That's really where it ends in terms of, I mean, what happens after that in terms of the U.S. invasion, et cetera, is in many respects secondary to that fateful decision 
which was tied to the equally faithful, even more faithful decision to put Morris Bishop on the house arrest. Right? So the joint leadership part is often not spoken about in the way perhaps could be. That was an internal decision. People felt there was something about the leadership that needed to change. How Morris Bishop responded and how members of the Central Committee responded and the decision to put him under house arrest, right? It's easy for us to look backwards at it today and say, well, look at this situation. You know, this thing unfolded over days and weeks and why not at some point did some voice of reason step in and say, look, this is madness. I think the answer to that question is what we talked about earlier. Tension, pressure, stress. You know, just think about the decision, and you magnify this by a thousand. We think about the decisions we make and how we behave when we're exhausted. And magnify that by a thousand. That's what folks were dealing with in Grenada. I'm certain that when they look back, back at those events, there's somewhat, some shell shock, not everybody. Because in that same film, Selwyn Strong, who was a member of the Central Committee, if I'm not mistaken, mistaken, he's interviewed. And there's a kind of callousness to his tone that reminds you of like a kind of old Soviet apparitchik or something. It was just like, you know, they did this, so we have to respond with this. And, and that, you know, like this kind of logic that was, that disturbed me actually more than the person who acknowledged that he made the decision to shoot them. Because that showed the ethos and how deeply embedded it is and how he hadn't let it go. That was troubling. That was very troubling. troubling. But um, I think everything I've just said and we've just, we've just talked about is a reflection of what Grenada has to teach us. I think that's my point. You know, It's like all of these things that we've discussed are about the dynamics of politics. And we revisit them so as to not repeat the mistakes, I think. Or at least to try not to. To avert them as much as it's possible. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I agree with you. And I think definitely, as you mentioned, four years on us, why it's very important to study this example and learn what we can. I, I just want to say thank you so much for having this discussion. And I really appreciated it. And, and I learned a lot from just the reflection about what happened and what we can learn from it. I wanted to just ask in concluding if there are, you've mentioned a few throughout, but more books, films, literature, uh, sources that people can read if they want to learn more about the revolution and, and the invasion and, and continue these reflections. Hmm. Well, I mentioned Shalini Puri's book, which is quite brilliant, and Lori Lambert's book called Comrade Sister. Also a really good book in terms of thinking about the dynamics, in this case, you know, gender dynamics, uh, partly, well, centered around gender dy dynamics in Grenada, but as an expression of the, the overall politics. There are a number, and I can't remember the names of all, all of them, but like a number of people, including Bernard Court, have written memoirs about the Grenada Revolution, which from their personal perspective are going to be are, are interesting too. Um, Merle Collins has written about the Grenada Revolution. 
there's an interview in Calabash, the journal Calabash, which was really interesting. And there's some of the articles that I mentioned um, in Vanguards and Masses, which the essay that I wrote, which is a little bit older now, but like I think some of the articles and references that I draw on there are still quite useful. Um, there's a film that was done in the 19... Well, it, it was released just after the Grenada Revolution collapsed, but it was done... It was being worked on in the lead-up. Well, in the lead-up. It was being worked on up until 1983 or so. It's called Jamaica... I'm sorry, Grenada, The Future Coming Towards Us. I still think it's a it's a really good film. The other film by Paddington, Bruce Paddington, I think his name is... Um, I really don't remember the title, but it might be it might be forward ever backward never maybe. And there's another film that I watched at this conference on Grenada just last week, two Fridays ago. Um, it's a recent film, and it's very interesting because the person who directed the film is the daughter, is the son. Sorry a person who was very close to Angela Davis was Angela Davis's student at UCLA and was part of her campaign to get her job back when she was removed from her position for being part of the Communist Party and was also part of our campaign to get her released from prison. In 1980, I think, no, it must be 82, maybe 82, she moves to Grenada with her family, the same person, because the Grenada Revolution is happening, it's inspiring, and she's there when it collapses. So the film is about the son going back with his mother to revisit the Grenada Revolution and where they lived and talk about how it unfolded. But it's just a really good uh, kind of reminiscence and reflection meditation on, on what happened in Grenada and also its implications for people who are not Grenadian and its implications for people in many different parts of the world, including the United States. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, David. I really appreciate talking to you. My pleasure. My pleasure. You take care then. Thank you. You take care. All right. Now is the time for action. In the sight of Gary's head was corruption. So the bishop let Grenadians on a mission to build his Caribbean island. He took it by force with a bishop revolution. We'll go down in history, revolutionary. The way the Grenada people take over their country. England, Guyana, and Jamaica, Barbados, States, and Canada recognize the bishop as the Grenada leader. But down in Trinidad, the doctor didn't reply. While you got Dazi, the army is another victim. The combined islands say no bishop is a Fidel Castro, not like Rhodesia. England prime minister had to go, yeah. People of the Caribbean, listen. Now is the time for action. In 
Sanders, height of Gary's head was corruption. So the bishop let Grenadians on a mission to build his Caribbean island. He took it by force with a bishop revolution. Gary's head got rotten. All of a sudden, he turned into poison. Here is one example. You must have heard down in Antica, Mr. Bell imprisoned while tax. Now Grenadians say they want to carry for murder. When we give them a cross, we make them a walk box. But they pull us like cyclops playing on the seers. That is why they hang Ali Putu in his spot was corrupt. And it was nobody's fault. Ali still had too much salt here. Leaders of the Caribbean. Always the time for action. Inside of Gary's head was corruption. So the bishop let Grenadians on a mission build his Caribbean island. He took it by force with a bishop revolution. The bishop caught the disease of Sir Harry Gary. Ayah, he jelly man like Pezzi all over the country. Freedom of writing and talking, the PRG end up banning. The touch like this paper was this object of the matter. Winston White will agree with me, there is no democracy. And I'm speaking quite frankly, religions are you free? I will explain I was singing, Gary wipe the tears from your eye, big boy, Gary don't cry. Maurice Bishop must tell us why. Thank you. 